Two Thursdays ago at about 6 o'clock a.m., Christine and I were in bed, and we heard outside this loud bang. And then several minutes later, we heard screeching tires and another bang. Well, the roads were bad. There was an accident on 72 on the other side of our fence, and I got dressed, and I went out in the snow, and um, my neighbors, uh, Josie and Aaron, from their second-floor bedroom, kindly told me that before the accident, which was the screeching and the second bang, a silver Jeep Liberty crashed into my fence door and then drove off the first bang. My gate is obliterated. It's still laying out there. I haven't picked up the pieces. That's criminal. Come on. Well, rightly applied, an eye for an eye means whoever hit my fence should pay to fix my fence. That's fair. Accidents happen, and repayment is right and good. The driver shouldn't go to jail, uh, shouldn't pay me $1 million for emotional trauma over an obliterated fence gate, but should simply pay for the repair. An eye for an eye is called restitution or proportionate punishment which pleases God. Now, what if I took the civil law principle of an eye for an eye and applied it personally in this situation? What if this is how the story went? Bang! And I look out my window and I see the Jeep and I jump in my car and I track that fence wrecker for miles remaining stealth, several cars behind and they arrive at work and I covertly park a block away, and they enter work, and I pop my trunk and grab a crowbar and stroll over to that Jeep. Now no one's around. Smash, smash, smash. I smash out the other three sides of the Jeep and leave a little note on the windshield, tit for tat, have a nice day, smiley face. Now would you say that I applied an eye for an eye rightly? Well, I hope not, or you're sadistic and sick. <laughs> so this alternate ending is called retaliation, not justice. Retaliation is our natural impulse. We spontaneously flash that look, make that sarcastic comment, send that email, kick our sister. We are inclined to interpret an eye for an eye as I'm justifying, I'm justified in returning evil for evil. Well, the gospel opens our eyes to that tendency, humbles us, and compels us to love those who wrong us. Only sovereign grace through faith transforms vengeance into love. Jesus loves us so much that he gave his life to transform our vengeance into love. And saints, that's exactly what he's doing in our lives right now by his spirit. So here's what I want you to walk away with today. It's really simple. The good news for believers is that through faith, Jesus graciously provides us with the desire for our neighbor's good and the strength to live for it. The good news for believers is that through faith, Jesus graciously provides us with the desire for our neighbor's good and the strength to live for it. Saints, Jesus didn't simply save us from hell. He is saving us from the control of sin and is compelling us to, to freely and willingly love those who wrong us. 
Of course, the desire to retaliate is still very much in us, and sometimes we do actually carry through on that desire and retaliate, but because we belong to Jesus, body and soul, the Spirit of Christ is right there in us, compelling us to love, to love. This new life we have in Christ is a life of daily, spirit-wrought and synonymous mortification and vivification. In other words, every day Jesus compels us to cast off the works of darkness while putting on the armor of light. To put off our old self while putting on our new self which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. To put to death what is earthly in us while putting on our new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Brothers and sisters, because we belong to Jesus' body and soul, he daily helps us do Romans 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's daily vivification. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's daily mortification. We stop retaliation in its tracks by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ daily and putting retaliation to death daily. 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 It's a daily fight of faith. It's a daily fight to love until we find final and complete rest in the consummated kingdom of Christ. What a day that will be. No more fight. Try to muster up strength to love on your own and you will feel burdened and anxious and frustrated and defeated and you'll fail. But if you look to Christ in faith, if you confidently draw near to the throne of grace, expecting your Father to provide for you, you will receive mercy and find grace and help in your time of need, as Hebrews 4.16 promises. Verses 38 through 42 are impossible for you and me. But not for Christ working in you and me. As we approach verses 38 through 42, let's not forget what came before the Sermon on the Mount and right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, Jesus began with guilt and grace. How did Jesus begin his preaching ministry? Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, that's guilt. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that's grace. In verse 19, Jesus told them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's Christ's irresistible grace drawing his disciples to himself out of their condemnation. That's guilt and grace. They repented and responded because he called them. And at the end of Matthew 4, we see Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in the Galilee of the nations. Even when he began the Sermon on the Mount, guilt and grace are at least implied. Blessed are the poor in spirit, guilt, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, grace. Blessed are those who mourn, guilt, for they shall be comforted, grace. Blessed are the meek, guilt, for they shall inherit the earth, 
grace. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Guilt, for they shall be satisfied. Grace. Jesus developed a doctrine of guilt and grace for his disciples so that when they heard his call to radical obedience, they would receive strength to respond in grateful and love-filled obedience. Jesus used guilt and grace synonymously. They have to come together synonymously to build a foundation upon which gratitude rests. His teaching heartened them, strengthened them, because the radical call to obedience came in light of the gospel of grace and their deliverance from their guilt. The Sermon on the Mount is comforting only to people aware of their sin and misery who daily receive sovereign grace through faith and who live confident that they belong to Christ. Those people hear the Sermon on the Mount as this beautiful called call to spirit-wrought love. That's how they hear it. They just hear it differently. Jesus even reminded them of their true identity. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Knowing their identity would be central to their radical acts of love. They needed to know who they were in Christ. I, I want you to first understand the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Once that's clear, uh, verses 38 through 42 will be much easier to understand and apply. So number two, what is the lex talionis or law of retaliation? Lex talionis is Latin for law of retaliation and refers to the legal phrase, an eye for an eye which comes from Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19, biblical concept. An eye for an eye is not for individual application, but is for civil application to prevent vengeance and to promote fairness. Do you understand? So it's a sunny day, and you hit the drive through at McDonald's, and your windows are down, and you're blaring Debbie Gibson and you, there's a burger hanging out of your mouth, and it's a good day. And all of a sudden, the breeze catches your burger wrapper, and out the window it goes. Oops. Uh, and you look in the rear view, and there's a cop. He saw you litter. Whoop, whoop. And he pulls you over, and all of a sudden, you hear very loudly, drop your keys out the window, Slowly open the door, put your hands on your head, and exit the vehicle. You start to panic. What? And before you know it, you're cuffed sitting in the police car. And when you go before the judge, she sentences you to 20 years in prison without parole for littering. That's a bit excessive, a bit over the top, judge. Thank you very much. Lex talionis prevents that. An eye for an eye is a figurative way of saying, let the punishment fit the crime. We're talking about retributive justice or proportionate punishment, not revenge. Dr. Doriani said, quote, in itself, an eye for an eye ensures that criminals are treated justly and are protected from malice and vengefulness. The law protects society, too, for just laws deter crime. Just laws purge evil from the land and instill fear of the Lord, end of quote. So an eye for an eye is a great law. 
We want that law in civil society, but it is never, ever to be applied to personal vengeance. Do we have that? That's huge. So now, now I want you to be honest about something. If someone just up and slapped you across the face, what would, what would happen inside you? How would your heart respond? Would you at least have the urge to slap them back? At least the urge. Well, let's use something more likely. What happens inside of you when someone cuts you off or butts in front of you or gives a cheap shot during the game or bullies you relentlessly? What happens inside you? Our natural impulse is to take an eye for an eye and to misuse it to justify our payback. Isn't that what we do? Hey, they did this to me. I'll just do this to them. They had it coming. As if that's any justification at all. It's a natural response, but it's the wrong application of an eye for an eye. The scribes and Pharisees were twisting the lex talionis, which brings us to number three. We are inclined by nature to retaliate and to self-justify as we retaliate. The scribes and Pharisees were doing it, using an eye for an eye to justify retaliation, and that's what Jesus addressed in verses 38 through 42. Lex talionis is right and it is good, but not when used personally. Listen to what God says about applying an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth wrongly. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. That, that's in the law, that's in the same book as an eye for an eye. Proverbs 20, verse 22, do not say, I will repay evil, wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Proverbs 24, verse 29, do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Folks, God's law prohibits returning evil for evil. Jesus said in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, what was our precious Lord doing there? What's he doing? He's directly quoting the Old Testament law. And yet, in verse 39, he said with, with a superior and a rectifying tone, but I say to you, was Jesus correcting an exact quote of God's law? Was he correcting God's law? Saints, we need to be very careful with verse 38, or else we might find ourselves setting Jesus against God and his holy law. There is nuance to verse 38. And in all the other instances where Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, and but I say to you. Nuance, you have to pick up on it. So let me help you understand it. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said. Use the same um, or similar words in verse 21 regarding murder and anger. In verse 27, regarding adultery and lust. In verse 31, regarding divorce. In verse 33, regarding oaths. And he'll do it again in verse 43, regarding love for uh, your enemies. And in each case, he was not correcting God's law, but correcting common misinterpretations and misapplications of God's law. 
See, for a long time, the scribes and Pharisees twisted the law and used it to justify themselves. And in the case of verse 38, had taken the phrase an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and they used it to justify personal retribution. The very thing that the lex talionis was meant to prevent. They had the right verse, but the wrong understanding and application of it. One scholar noted this. The Pharisees appealed to this law to justify personal retribution and revenge. They quoted this commandment in order to defeat its very purpose. End of quote. Sometimes people quote the Bible to justify bad things. Bloody noses are are often preceded by a sarcastic word and justified by an eye for an eye. A word, a push, a shove, a punch, a knife, a gun, a grave. That's where the misuse of an eye for an eye ends. Jesus described for his disciples an alternative to retaliation. A better way to live, a a better way of understanding and applying God's law. When his contemporaries perverted an eye for an eye to justify their abuse of their neighbor, Jesus taught his disciples how to love their neighbor. He showed them who he is and who he was making them to be. But I say to you, do not resist the evil, the, the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Folks, retaliation is knee-jerk. We don't even have to think about it. And Jesus taught his disciples a better way, the way of love. Number four, Jesus graciously compels his disciples to loving, humble, and generous self-sacrifice instead of retaliation. Jesus began his kingdom, his reign and rule in their hearts and made them citizens of a heavenly kingdom. He put the law of love into them. John, he was there. He heard the Sermon on the Mount, and he eventually wrote this. We love because he first loved us. And and John experienced this supernatural progression from guilt to grace to gratitude. That was his life story. Listen carefully to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, it makes all the difference in how you hear verses 38 through 42. Paul said this, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Christ died for us, brothers and sisters. He died for his church to bring sin to death in us, in the church, in his people. It is the self-sacrificing and the redemptive love of Jesus Christ which is poured into us, brothers and sisters, through the Holy Spirit who has been given us as a gift. Christ's love compels us. Christ's love impels us to love God and our neighbor. 
It is his love alone which overcomes retaliation and transforms it into love. I like how one source put it. Listen carefully. This love suggests the Lord's seizing us to hold us and maintain us in his sovereign and exclusive possession. It takes possession of us so forcefully forcefully, that it compels us to love in return and wraps up our whole being more than pressure. It is compulsion that orients our whole life and all our conduct. Compulsion, not pressure. The world world revels in retaliation because it knows not the love of Christ. But we do, brothers and sisters, we know the love of Christ because Christ's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been graciously given us. Therefore, we are able to overcome retaliation and to love instead because our Jesus provides the supernatural love that we need. This brings us to number five and my main point, number five. The good news for believers is that through faith, Jesus graciously provides us with desire for our neighbor's good and the strength to live for it. By saying, but I say to you, as he did so many times in the Sermon on the Mount, he wanted his disciples to understand something unique about himself. He wanted them to understand that he was the preeminent interpreter of the law and prophets. He was the definitive word the one who was going to tell them what it was all about. That he had authority, that the law was actually his law, and that he himself is the fulfillment of his law. Could his disciples do what he taught on their own? No, no, that's why he was there revealing himself to them and teaching them so they would know that union with him is vital in doing the law, vital in gratitude, vital in obeying the law of God, obeying God for his good pleasure. Jesus said, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, Some groups, like the Church of the Brethren, and Brethren in Christ, and Mennonites, and Quakers, and others, have used this verse to argue for passivism, or non-resistance. Now, that is a ginormous topic beyond the scope of this sermon. But let me mention two important thoughts, just to get your thoughts going. First, Jesus was instructing his disciples in how to love in person-to-person relationships. He was, not addre- he, he, he was addressing personal revenge. He was not addressing civil retributive justice. Jesus was not instructing his disciples in how God's legal principle of an eye for an eye is appropriately applied to government, law enforcement, or military. That's not what he's talking about. Second, if we want to understand the proper use of physical force against evil, Romans 13 clearly explains it. Where the Anabaptists and other groups forbid all physical force for Christians, Romans 13 says that governing authorities which would include police and military, are appointed by God. 
They are God's servants and ministers of God even, and God intends government authorities to be, quote, a terror to bad conduct. Paul argues that governing authorities are given physical force as, quote, servants of God and avengers to carry out God's wrath on wrongdoers. So, so hear me now, when a policeman lawfully but reluctantly pulls the trigger to prevent an armed criminal from doing harm to others, it is God's wrath that is sent in his bullet. Therefore, it is right and good and entirely consistent with verses 38 through 42. Dr. Doriani helpfully commented, and this is very important to understand, the defender uses the minimum of force necessary to drive out the invader. The defender even loves the foe as he defeats him, for a nation will not find spiritual blessing if it lives by theft and murder. It is good for the invaders themselves if they are humbled by defeat. The same is true of terrorists. They should be stopped for their own good as well as everyone else's. Now, more needs to be said about pacifism, but perhaps another time. Resisting isn't always bad. In James 4, 7, we are commanded to resist the devil. And in Galatians 2, 11, Paul mentions resisting Peter to his face in front of other people, which would have been very embarrassing for Peter, which was necessary to preserve and promote the gospel. He resisted him. So resisting is not inherently evil. It's not even forbidden in all times. What did Jesus mean then? And it's really, really simple. If someone wrongs you personally, don't retaliate and return evil for evil. There you have it. It's very easy. So if you get slapped on the right cheek, think about it, right cheek, you were likely backhanded. A thoroughly insulting act won't kill you, but it'll sting, and it's insulting. It's embarrassing. The person backhanding you is trying to put you in their place or your place. The, the soldiers, they punched Jesus, absolutely pummeled him, but they also insulted him with backhanded slaps. Jesus' point is to love when insulted. Love when insulted. He's not talking about lawful self-defense even, or using force to rescue victims, or even military campaigns. That's not what he's talking about. He's advocating love instead of personal retaliation or payback. In the moment you get that backhanded slap, that snide comment, that biased evaluation, that intentionally aggressive foul in the game, Jesus will fill you with his love so that you can overcome that insult with good. Your red cheek turns when your eyes are on Christ instead of on the hand that slapped you. I love what J.C. Ryle said about this. He said, a readiness to resent injuries, a quickness to take offense, a quarrelsome and contentious disposition, a keenness in asserting our rights, all, all are contrary to the mind of Christ. The world may see no harm in these habits of mind, but they do not correspond to the character of the Christian. Our master says, do not resist him who is evil, end of quote. And Ryle aptly added, 
we are to put up with much and bear much rather than hurt another or give offense. In all things, we are to be unselfish. In all things, we are to be unselfish. Verse 40, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone wishes to sue you for your t-shirt, why don't you go ahead and give them your coat too? Uh, This is very interesting because the law prohibited anyone from taking another's cloak. Tunic, yes, cloak, never. You just couldn't take it by law. It was often all the person had to keep warm. Jesus didn't mean in this, hey, allow someone to sue you for everything that you're worth. Give them all of it so that you don't have anything left to provide for your family. Or, or give that needy, greedy uh, scoundrel all your money so that you can, so you can no longer feed your kids. That's not what he's saying. His point was not to be railroaded by everybody. Some people make ridiculously unfair and greedy demands that harm themselves and that harm others. Jesus, Jesus also wants courts to be completely fair and equitable and right and just. What does Jesus mean? Well, be, be prepared to lose it all. Be ready to give it all up. Not yours anyway. Trust in God's providence. Uh, be prudent Absolutely, be prudent, but be ready for injustice and ready to be generous and ready to love the one who wrongs you, the unjust person. Verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The Jews lived under Roman occupation, very threatening to them. A Roman soldier could force people to carry a certain burden, a certain distance, could force them to, kind of like a policeman commandeering a vehicle, One source said the possibility of a Roman soldier coercing a person to serve as a guide or burden carrier was real. Even if compelled by force to do something for someone, one can demonstrate freedom by volunteering more than is demanded rather than begrudging the service. End of quote. Hmm. James Boyce said he was to go two miles with cheerfulness and good grace. Folks, cheerfulness and good grace going the extra mile. So you're being forced to do something really hard that you absolutely do not want to do. Jesus pours his love into you supernaturally and transforms their coercion into your glad-hearted volunteerism which goes above and beyond. Who is capable of that? Look at the life, suffering, and crucifixion of Jesus. Watch him in Scripture go above and beyond every single time out of cheerful love for his father and love for his neighbor. He is the one who transforms your desire for retaliation into a desire to go above and beyond the call of duty for your neighbor's good. And Jesus gives you the strength to live for your neighbor's good. Imagine what that extra mile will say to your coercer about the God that you serve and about your love for them and your love for God. That kind of love is so thought-provoking. 
Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In other words, be generous. Uh, Give to others because God has given to you. When you understand guilt and grace, how God gave and gives you unmerited favor, generosity becomes a priority. Now, I think the ESV is slightly misleading when it uses begs. I'm not sure that's the best. The HCSB translates it like this. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Because when we hear begs, I think we we go to the the often brought up situation of the beggar on the street who's asking for money. I just think it's beyond that. I think he's saying something different. One study Bible said, Jesus does not say what to give. Sometimes what a person really needs is not what they request. Positively, Jesus encourages a spirit of generosity. End of quote. Again, what Jesus has in mind is love for your neighbor, generosity, big-heartedness. Some people want your money to buy drugs. Some people want your money so they can keep the heat on for their kids. Verse 42 doesn't mean you hastily or foolishly give to everyone simply because they ask because doing that is actually not loving your neighbor. So guess what? This takes discernment to work it out. Where does that discernment come from? The Holy Spirit of Christ working in us. You have to weigh this verse with other scriptures to apply it appropriately like you have to do with all other scriptures. So I think what Jesus was after was what he said in Luke 6, 35 through 36. I think this is what he's after. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. What is Jesus teaching? He's fleshing out the law which his followers do out of gratitude. Love God and love your neighbor. That's the heart of the law. That's what he's teaching. That's what he's getting at. And it is a radical message beyond that of the natural inclination of the human heart. But but see, because of guilt and grace, because of repentance and faith, because of union with Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, the believer is transformed and also empowered to do radical and selfless acts of love. Don't you hear Jesus here and think, this is entirely beyond me. I can't do it. I don't have the strength to love when I feel like retaliating. Isn't that how you feel? It seems daunting. Why? Because the law is daunting. But, but if we feel that way, okay, me, you, if we feel that way, so daunting, so heavy, so burdensome, if we feel discouraged and defeated and powerless at what the law calls us to do, it means our eyes are on the wrong person. It means our eyes are on us instead of, our, instead of on Christ. Christ didn't implement an eye for an eye on you. Praise God. He extended you mercy. He didn't resist the cross, God's wrath, but took your evil upon himself 
and granted you his righteousness in its place. He was punched, slapped, flogged, insulted, bullied relentlessly. He was pierced on a cross, and yet he turned the other cheek, and he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus was more than sued. His trial was a travesty of justice. They took him for all that he was worth, and then he went the extra trillion, trillion, trillion miles Willingly and joyfully going to his slaughter to pay for yours and mine, our sin, and to grant us his righteousness and salvation. Brothers and sisters, we beg him for mercy. We beg him for grace and love. And brothers and sisters, he does not refuse us. He does not turn away from us, but lavishes upon us all the benefits of reconciliation with God. Jesus, now, he might refuse us at times, but only because there are greater gifts that he is giving us. But he never refuses us of what we need so desperately, so deeply. He just gives and 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 gives. That's who he is. And he gives so that we may enjoy God forever. The Sermon on the Mount is entirely beyond you and me. Entirely. It is out of your reach. And if you strive alone, oh, how discouraged. But you're not alone. Jesus can do it all. Every last jot and tittle of it, he does, because it's who he is. And dear saints, you have him, don't you? And because you have him, because you belong to him, he promises to work this love in you by his sovereign grace and power. And he is working it. Love is not beyond you because it is not beyond Christ who is in you. James Boyce said, do not say that the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be followed if you're a Christian. They can be if Christ lives in you. What is more, they must be followed. If you are serious about them, why not begin by yielding to Christ's words about retaliation. Brothers and sisters, verses 38 through 42 hearten us to look to Christ and not ourselves. We must look to Christ and see that he is ready and willing to help us love. He promises you strength to love. You can love like him, but only because his love graciously compels you to love like him. You may want to retaliate against that person. Yes. That's your sinfulness. That's your old man doing the desiring. But dear child of God, look to Christ and he will transform your retaliation into love because he loves you and you will act consistently with who you really are. A beloved child of God who wants to do what the Father wants to do. Jesus goes the extra mile with you. Here's what I want you to leave with. The good news for believers is that through faith, Jesus graciously provides us with desire for our neighbor's good and the strength to live for it. 